so we are in our identity series, a gospel story, Star Wars, really cool, nothing to do with the series. Okay, I say that all the time, but it's true. All right, tonight we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, favorite book of the Bible. For me, it is Judges chapter 6. Why don't you guys open up your Bibles? It's going to be near the beginning. There's the five first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, Penta being five, Tuk, I guess, books. Um, and so, <laughs> that's <what> Genesis. Gen- <laughs> it goes Genesis. Um, man, I'm just lost now. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, no, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Thank you. Then the, the sixth book is uh, Joshua, which leads us to the seventh book, Judges. Judges. So, the book of Judges. What's happening in the history of Judges? Why does Judges exist? Well, God uh, has done an amazing thing. We've, we've kind of tracked out some of the people. We've looked at Eve's story. We've looked at um, uh, uh, Noah's story, Abraham's story, Joseph's story. And last couple weeks, we looked at uh, the book of Joshua and both Joshua's story and Rahab's. And what we are is uh, God created the world with Adam and Eve. God flooded the world with Noah. God ended up promising something to Abraham about a future promise to to love and to bless the entire earth from his family. And now we're seeing that promise played out in the lives of these people that we're watching in the Bible. And Joseph's part of that promise line. And Joseph, we learn from Joseph that that's how God's people ended up becoming in, in Egypt. And if you guys know about Egypt, that's where the sl- they were slaves. And God brought them out of the Exodus. The Exodus, they exited Egypt. And they came to the promised land and Joshua led them into the promised land. It's like the land that God had promised Abraham. He said, your family is going to bless the entire earth, but I promise you this land. And so the people finally arrive in the land. They're in the land. God's their king, and they're worshiping, following, and seeking him. And this is where every good story has a twist, and the plot turns. And here's what happens. The people's hearts move away from him. See, God gave him a land and it was flowing with milk and honey. And really, was, that's more of a description of the kind of land it was. They came from a land of Egypt. And in Egypt, all you had to do is kick some dirt by the Nile, throw a seed down, and it would grow something. But in this new land they got, got to, they, they didn't, that's not how it worked. Uh, it wasn't as wet and, uh, and rainy. And actually, any crops they planted would have to have a rain come down to get them to grow. This land was more of like a cattle grazing area. They'd have more milk uh, from, from goats more likely. And honey, it was a great source of, uh, of nutrients. So they'd have a lot of uh, bee farms. So land of milk and honey. So the Judges takes place in this land, uh, the book of Judges. And what happens is the people start rejecting God and they go through these cycles. God uh, goes after them. God frees them from bondage. And usually what happens, there's an army from somewhere around there would come in and just raid through the land, take all their their crops, take everything they owned and run off with them. And so the people of God would keep getting beat up. And finally, they'd get to a point where they're like, okay, 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 we relent. God, now help us, help us, come and help us. And so God faithfully would hear them and go help them. And he would send these people called judges. And these judges were leaders of the people. They would come and they would rescue Israel from their affliction. This nation that God had redeemed, the nation that God had given land to, even the nation that despised him and ran away from him. And so we get into the book of Judges. We come to this judge whose name is Gideon. Gideon. And that's where our story is going to 
start. So Judges chapter 6, that's where we're going to go. I forgot to do my intro, so we're going to go backwards a little bit. Sorry, that wasn't the intro. <laughs> so sorry. I feel like we got to do this still, okay? Oh, wait, so I don't know if you guys ever have seen this, but like you kind of see this sometimes on TV, up with like the um, paparazzi. You have like celebrities who have a, a greater view of themselves or a greater view of importance than they really do, right? Um, and there's this question that sometimes I hear them saying, especially to people in the service industry. Uh, it's like when they stop them, like, who do you, what, what are you doing? And they usually say, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am, right? And there's actually all these stories out there about like these celebrities doing this, like flight attendants and like some really funny stories that come out of it. But I thought it was really funny as I, as I look back through like my life, I, I, I think about when, when would I have ever said like, who do you think I, who do you, do you know who I am? I'm sorry, do you know who I am? And I thought about it and uh, many times I think when I interacted with my parents, I kind of the way I treated them, you know, where I kind of thought I was smarter and I knew what I was talking about. It, it was kind of like that I had that spirit in me. You know, my parents come to me with something and I'm like, wait, hold on, do you know who I am? You know, like I know something about this, right? Uh, and they would get kind of like, you know, like this, like, you know, like I'm going to slap you look on their face, right? And you're like, and then kind of the response back is, I hear from my parents, do you know who I am? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, I think I've been having a little identity crisis, right? Um, and mom's about to put me right back in my place. Um, see, I think a lot of times this happens where we're trying to figure out who we are, we're, we're trying to interact, we're trying to learn a little, even how to, how to uh, interact and have relationships with each other. Uh, and, and there's an identity that's really what we're seeking. Uh, and in the middle of this, crisis often occurs. We have a crisis. Uh, and it brings up uh, confusion and hurt and, and chaos. And ultimately, when we're misplacing our identity, crisis occurs. And the reason why we're talking about that tonight is because the book of Gideon. I'm sorry, the book of Judges. The, the Judge Gideon, he is going to have a crisis. He has an identity crisis to his whole story. It's just one sad thing, one thing right after another. And ultimately, we're going to see the opposite has to be for us. And so we're going to try to spin it positive because Gideon's story is just really sad. And so ultimately this, guys, true identity, true identity in Christ gives us confidence in any situation. True identity in Christ gives us confidence in any situation. We can go through anything if we have our identity really set in Jesus. And what we're going to see is, funny thing is Gideon's going to get through a lot of stuff, but he doesn't end well. You know, we're going to go from the good, the bad, to the ugly. That's an old Western movie. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it. Uh, but people use this kind of phrase all the time, good, the bad, the ugly. And Gideon has, a, has some good. He moves to some bad. And it ends real ugly, real ugly. Let's look down at this. So we start off with, with Gideon is not in a crisis of faith necessarily, a crisis of identity. Um, this is the good of Gideon's, Gideon's identity. It's from the beginning. Uh, we look down, and so uh, starting in chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made themselves the dens that, they are, uh, that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whatever Israel planted crops and Midianites and the Amalekites, uh, and the people of the east would come up against them. So this is just what's happening to them. They, 
they they'd been under siege for seven years. These people would come up. This is where everything starts. And so we have this scene where this, this army is coming up from uh, the east uh, into the land of Israel. And this is where Gideon lives. And we find out that this people had to like find places to hide things. And so his story really starts in verse 11. Why don't you guys look down there? He says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat underneath the tribanth at Orth. Wow. Ophra. (laughs) I'm really struggling with the names tonight. Which belonged to Joash the Abizite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So here we have this angel of God, angel of the Lord, shows up to Gideon. And where is he? He's in a wine press. Okay, what does that mean? Well, if you guys don't know, when you're like threshing grain, it means like you're, you're crunching it. You're trying to break uh, this, um, ooh, just lost the words. There's uh, the husk away from the seed. So you got to crush it, and then you got to take it. You got to throw it up in the air. So the natural desire is to be out in an open area because when you toss it up, what happens? The wind can come through and carry off the light stuff, and the seed can fall right to the ground. Where's Gideon? In a wine vat. Uh, a wine vat, maybe, maybe a little, little, the size of the stage, maybe a little smaller. So you got to see this guy's in there crunching the seeds and kind of throwing it up in the air, hopefully that some wind comes and catches it. It's not very effective. This is not where you, where you, where you take your grain to do this. So the angel of the Lord appears. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you. Oh, mighty man of valor. That's sarcasm. That's sarcasm right in the Bible. Like, here he is hiding. And it tells us, right? He was hiding because he was scared of the Midianites coming and taking his stuff. So he's hiding, and the angel of the Lord goes, Hey, like, trust the Lord, man of valor. And so he's kind of like poking at him a little bit. Uh, this, is, this is where the good parts of Gideon are, you know? So he responds. We read on verse 13. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then have has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers re, uh, recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He's in a crisis in this moment. He knows who God is. He, he, he remembers that there's things that God has done. But yet in the middle of this, he's, he's kind of scared for his life. So Gideon has this whole conversation with this angel and, and the angel ends up saying, like, no, the God is actually in control. God is powerful, and he's going to save Israel, and he's going to use you, which is really funny. Gideon's the scared kid uh, working, so, uh, working and hiding so that uh, no one can find him. And the angel says, I'm going to use you. So in the course of this conversation, Gideon says, okay, I don't know why, but he says, hey, wait right here. I'm going to go get you a meal. And so maybe it's him being hospitable. We don't quite know. But he goes and gets him a meal. He, like, he brings us like broth, this bread, and some meat. And the angel, who Gideon doesn't know is an angel at this point, says, go ahead and put it on this rock. So Gideon sets it on the rock, and he says, pour the broth on top of it. He pours it on top. And the angel takes his, his staff and touches the rock, and it consumes in one, one, in one way, just in one motion, consumes all the food. So at that point, Gideon's like, Oh, snap. Like, this isn't just some traveler, right? He finally realizes who it is, and he's so scared it says that God actually speaks to him immediately and comforts him. 
because he realizes this. This is the angel of the Lord. This is the commander of God's army. He's a powerful, powerful angel. So he gets really scared. God comforts him. And then we find out later, God's speaking to him. And he, and he actually tells him later in this chapter, as we move on, he talks to him and says, listen, at night, he goes, I want you to go destroy this idol place. Okay, so what was this idol place? Well, it was this pole that they worshiped this goddess, uh, Asherah. And there was also an altar there for Baal. Now, Baal was a god back then. Uh, he was an idol and people would worship him. He was the god of rain. And so being in the land of Israel was a pretty important to have rain, right? Like if you wanted to grow crops, who did you worship? You had to worship Baal. Now, that wasn't true for Israel. They should have been worshiping God. But he is an Israelite. This is an Israelite town. And they have a shrine. They have a, an altar for Baal. And they have an Asherah pole. It's just super, super bad. These aren't good, these aren't good Israelite you know, boys and girls, okay? These people are completely corrupted. So God tells him at night, says, hey, I want you to go do this. And it says that, that he does it. He takes these 10 guys and goes, does it. But he doesn't do it in the daytime because he's scared of his family. He's scared of the people in the village. So he does it at night under the cover of darkness. Oh, man of valor. Oh, man of valor, right? This is the guy that's going to save Israel. He can't even like stand up to his own village, right? And so he does it and he tears it down. And this is the good part of his, his identity, right? And so he tears it down. And then in the morning, it says in verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah, Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. So he tears it down. God tells him, I want you to build an altar to me and sacrifice a bowl on it, which was another thing is on top of that pole would have been a picture of a bowl. So he tears down this pole, then sacrifices a bull with the image of a bull for God. So this had been super offensive to them. And what's their response? They're like, oh man, our Asherah pole's gone. I guess we got to rebuild it. What do they do? They said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. Now that's not good. They quickly figure out who it is. Now Gideon did it at night so no one would know who he is, right? bad situation right so they come to him and the men of the town said to Joash bring out your son that may die for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it but Joash said to all who stood against him will you contend for Baal or will you save him whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning if he is a god let him contend for himself fascinating right he lays it down. He's like, what? You're going you're gonna to go up against my son because he offended your God? Let your God come out. Let him come for my son. If your God's anything, you come. So this was something that was trapping Israel, this worship of Baal. God just asked Gideon to go chop this thing down, destroy it. People would have been super superstitious about doing this. And so they're all like, this sounds good to them. Joash's words are like, oh yeah, well, Baal will get him right? And so he actually gets this nickname, and it's, this is identity, right? They call him Jerob Baal, which means Baal will contend. He gets a nickname saying, this guy, they, see the people who wanted him dead said, let's mark him so that everybody knows this guy's the guy that's going to die, right? While his father marks him saying, this is a testimony to God. 
if my son doesn't die. And that's what's so amazing about this. This is the good. He lives up to God. He walks with God. He obeys God. Yet there's no confidence. There's no confidence. And this is why we know this. he has shaky identity. He's not really having his true identity in God. So I think that's very similar to us. We, we sometimes are very knowledgeable about what God wants. We're sometimes even sometimes active in it. Yet we lack the confidence. And I think that comes from a reality that we really probably don't truly have our identity set in God. There's so many other things. There's so many other things that can take our identity and take our focus away from Him. This is our identity crisis. I lost my notes, sorry. So his nickname was pretty, pretty bad. Like, people would have been, like, impressed with this, right? Especially as he moves on in his life. And so he comes up to the next major issue. And all of a sudden, God actually tells him, you know what? You need to call up the warriors. You're going to go defeat Median. So now he gets kind of excited about this. And so he, like, blows his horn. He kind of calls up the soldiers. Look at verse 33. It says, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. This is, Jezreel is the valley of Armageddon, if you didn't know. And the, and the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the um, Aberzites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout Manasseh, this is one of the tribes, they were too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali, they went up to meet them. So, Gideon, kind of having this semi-confidence, he doesn't call it on his own, but God gives him his spirit. He empowers him to go do this. God says, you're going to save the people. This is your identity. You are going to be my judge. And still, Gideon doesn't have the strength in himself, so God gives him the strength. And we're going to see this reluctance in him. So we're going from the good, which he gets his name, Jerobob, Jerobob, Baal, and now we're going to go to the bad. This is the bad of Gideon's identity. And, and it starts here. I'm calling these troops out. And you think, wow, this is going to be great, right? But then Gideon starts doubting. Look down at verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. It's funny he's at the threshing floor now. Um, so he's gaining some confidence, but he doesn't have total confidence. God has spoken to him. He's seen an angel like just like food on fire. He's been given this title, which is kind of like, like defender, right? Like he's like, he's a bit like, he's got some like super cool things going on in his life. He's got a lot of things to trust God on. He's seen his track record already, but he still doesn't have, he still has doubt and whether God will come through for him. So he throws out this fleece. Does anybody, you guys know what a fleece is? Imagine like something that's wool, right? Maybe like some, a cloth, uh, a gown, it's like a blanket. And so it's kind of puffy and it can absorb water, right? So he goes through this whole thing of like, okay, God, I'm going to ask you to do something impossible. And now while people might say this isn't possible or it is, the reality is this would have been really hard to replicate, okay? Um, so he goes, I'm going to try to put, do, put you to the test. And by doing this, you're going to prove that you really can save me. And what's really the question here Gideon is getting at is, 
are you really going to lift my name up? He's really concerned about him failing. And so he goes to God and he lays this fleece out on the threshing floor. He says, God, in the morning, may it be soaking wet and let none of the floor around it have any water on it. No dew. Now that would have been super tough to do, right? And so God, he shows up in the morning, wakes up and he finds it and he takes it and it says he wrings it out and it fills up a whole bowl of water. So God answered him, it's all dry, but that thing is wet. But that's not enough for Gideon. With everything he's seen so far, that's not enough. So he, he says it again, God, do it again. And God does it. But this time it's the opposite. The wool is completely dry and the ground is completely soaked. These, this is really astounding that God did this. It's super amazing. It's supernatural. This isn't just some weird phenomenon in nature. Uh, this is the creator of the universe that's able to do this. It's funny, people will actually point to this verse as a, a way to figure out what God wants for you in life. Uh, it's, it's called fleecing. I, have any of you guys ever heard of fleecing? No? Well, introduction. Um, I'll introduce you. So this seems to be, sometimes we get to this passage and we go, well, see, this is how God helps us decide things. When like, you're not sure, you want to tell God this is something that he needs to change or, or adapt, and then you'll really know whether God wants you to do that thing. Uh, like, it might be this. God, I, I don't have, you know, I don't have $100. So if you really want me to have, uh, if you really want me to go to Hume Lake for winter camp, God, you need to give me $100. $100 just show up in the mail. So you see these weird prayers of like God just showing up and doing something spontaneous or amazing. And when God doesn't, often these prayers is fleecing in this with some really deep, sorrowful areas. And we can feel hurt that God didn't hear us or didn't listen to us. This is not meant to be that way. Uh, it's not really meant to be used in that way. Um, however, um, if we're not trying to test God, but really trying to discern what his will is, I think this actually can be used in a helpful way. Okay. Uh, this is an ability to test God or doubt God. Say, God, I doubt you. I'm not sure if you're really there for me. Uh, if this is a way that you're trying to discern what he's trying to do, I don't see it as being that big of a deal. Just don't use it all the time. I'll give you my personal example. I didn't know fleecing was a bad thing, so I just did it. Um, and it really helped me discern some things in my life. I was graduated high school, and I was going to college at BC, and um, I uh, moved down here with a bunch of guys, and we, we found a church, and I started plugging into that church and, and started uh, becoming a junior high Sunday school teacher. And I just really loved it. I, I never really had the opportunity to teach that much. And I was teaching every week and I just really enjoyed it. And I was like, man, I don't know if this is something I'm called to. And earlier in high school, I'd, I'd kind of talked to my youth pastor about, you know, doing ministry. He flat out told me, you're not called. So I said, oh, okay, uh, I'm not called. So I just moved on from that, assuming that that's just true. Um, he was smarter than me. So I took it. Um, so we get through college, and I'm just like really struggling with this. Like I feel like there's a call in my life to do something more than just Sunday school. I really love doing this, but I really think that maybe I'm called to be in full-time ministry. And so part of that was like struggling because of things I've been through, things I'm going through, and just trying to figure out life. Part of it was is I was really poor. And if I wanted to go into ministry, it looked like I'd have to go to a Bible school. Well, Bible schools are around like $30,000 a year. I can't afford that. I was going to BC and I was struggling to get by. Um, I was actually a pretty rich C, uh, BC student, you know, you know how rich BC students can be. Um, 
they're not. So I wasn't very rich. Okay. Um, and so like I was doing well where I was, but I could not afford to go that extra bit. And God brought an opportunity to my, my uh, mind, um, uh, uh, somebody who had gone to Moody Bible Institute. And I'd heard about the school, and it was tuition-free. Which, what, it, what it meant was is if you got accepted, and they only accept people who want to go into full-time ministry. I got super excited. I said, like, okay, well, God, this is it then. There was no chance I'd get into school. Like the GPAs that you had to have, um, the kind of people they accepted, I was like, I was not one of them, okay? Um, and so I was like, I was, it, was like a, it was a spring semester transfer kind of thing. So I was like, okay, I'm going to apply. So I applied. I'm thinking I'm not going to accept it. I got a call from my mom one day. There was a letter come. She says, I got good news and bad news. And I was like, oh, no. Who's it from? Moody. She says, what should we like first? I'll take, I'll take the bad news first. She, she's like, well, maybe the good news first. I'm like, um, okay. I was like, well, I t- you asked me, and I, and I told you. And she's like, you got accepted Moody. And I was astounded. I prayed for, God, show me your way. God, if this be your way. This was an open-handed prayer. I wasn't demanding, I wasn't fearful, but I was expectant. And I think if you use that prayer, and I think we need to look at that sometimes, as that's an opportunity to really, if you're having an identity crisis and wondering what God's doing in your life, at that moment, to seek Christ in that moment, the fleecing's not wrong. Just don't doubt God and don't test Him. Just say, God, I'm trying to discern. It's a prayer of faith. It's a really simple prayer. We could build this off of anything else in the Bible. This is convenient. So, okay. So Gideon now, he's testing, right? He's testing. This is this gets down to his trust. This gets down to his identity. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The bad news was I had to be there in ten days. Okay. Um, well, his name was like fifteen. It was like, oh, I gotta get out of my lease. I gotta get out. I gotta. I gotta buy stuff. Like I'm like, oh man. Um, it was like really quick. So um, yeah, that was the bad news. Okay. So Gideon starts testing things. So we're in the bad of Gideon's identity. He's testing things. Gideon shrinks back, right? And we see this play out in his army. So he's called this huge army together, right? Chapter 7. We're moving through it. And he calls and he gets about 32,000 people in front of him, right? And like if you're Gideon, you're like putting your trust where? I got 32,000 people with me. Now we learn later how many Midianites came. 120,000. So I'm not sure if Gideon was exactly happy with only seeing 32,000. That's a fourth of the army size they're going to go against. So he's, he's actually super nervous. So what does God do? God does this to us so often. He goes, oh, hey, tell them the army's too big, Gideon. What? The army's too big? Do you know who we're going against? He's like, if there's anybody here that doesn't want to be here, tell them to go home. So he goes and tells them, anybody that want to be here, go home. And he's like, please stay. 22,000 people leave. So he's like, great. Then God said, okay, it's still too big. He's like, what? He said, okay, I want, this time, I want you to take them down by the water. I want you to help have everyone go get some water to drink. And God says, now I want you to see all of the guys who kneel down and lap like a dog. Those are the guys you want to keep. And people have all these like theories about like, well, these guys were like the most vicious guys. Like, I don't think that's actually true. I think God took the most, like, craziest thing because he's trying to get to Gideon's identity. He's trying to help him see, trust me. Trust me. And see, when our identity, we have a true identity set in Christ, it gives us confidence. And Gideon has no confidence. 
He continually comes to this like shaky and nervous. And why do I know that's true? We look what happens. Who's left? 300 men. This is the profound things. Hope you guys know this story. Gideon's 300. It's seen as this like awesome, like manly thing, right? It's like you guys have made, hopefully none of you have seen the movie 300. But like, you know the story about the 300 who stood at the um, Ithaca gate, right? The Ithaca pass. And they stood up against the Persian army advancing, right? 300 men in a small, narrow area stopped an entire invading force. This is Sparta. <laughs> there you go, it's Sparta. This is Gideon's Sparta, okay? Uh, the Gideon goes down. Yet Gideon's not like, okay, we're 300. And like, they're like, who, who? He's like, oh, why me, right? And so he gets down there and God knows this. God's so gracious to us. And this is so beautiful, guys. If you've come here and you're like, you're not sure who you are. You're not sure if you can look at someone and go, do you know who I am? Right? Yeah. You know, uh, you, you don't know who you are in Christ. You don't know really who Jesus is. You're still trying to figure that out. Well, this is why you need to listen. God is incredibly gracious. God hears Gideon and he sends him this. He says, hey, I want you to go down. He says, God actually asks him, hey, are you nervous? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, go down to the camp. Take someone with you. Sneak up to the camp. I've got something for you. So he sneaks up and he hears this soldier tell to this other group of soldiers. They're like, hey, I had this dream that basically this, this, this boulder came rolling down the hill and crushed the tent of the Midianites. He's like, and then it was, it was Gideon who actually defeated us. Like he's using Gideon's name. Do you think this guy knows Gideon? No chance. So he just says this to another soldier. This is God intervening for Gideon. Gideon hears this and goes, God's got this, right? So he goes back up the hill, divides up the men. They charge down and they defeat the Mennonites. Like, it's a crazy attack. They come in. God, in the middle of all this, turns the soldiers against each other. So he's running in, and I'm not sure how much he even did. Like, he runs in, and they're all stabbing each other and dying. Like, and it's like, whoa! They just threw down jars and had torches and ran. Um, and, every, and this whole army gets defeated. We find out like thousands, a hundred thousand men have died. And so they pursue it. And then he starts calling out to the hills and all those people that left come running down and chasing the Midianites out of Israel. But that's not where it stops. He pursues them out over the Jordan, eventually catches their kings and kills them. And he brings them back. Gideon, when he really trusted God, he changed everything. It changed everything for him. Um, often, Often that's... That's really important for us to hear. Uh, we need to see that God is gracious to each one of us. That he longs for us to have an identity. Um, and, and I think it all often we, we deny it, we, we run away from him. But he wants to give us satisfaction. He wants to give us confidence. And he wants to give us those victories. Uh, whether it's over sin in your life, whether it's in a relationship that you need help with, uh, whether it's in obedience God longs to give us a victory, but that confidence, that swagger, that only can come through identity, to know who you are, to know who you are, beloved, called a child of God, has come through Jesus, that he died for us, that he suffered in our place, that he took our sin, and this is the only hope we have. If we place our identity in anything else, we're going to be like Gideon in all the bad ways. We're going to be like Gideon in all of the bad ways. Gideon's a confusing character as we get back into it. So he attacks and defeats all these Midianites, right? 
And then the people want to make him king. So turn to chapter 8. We're, kind of, we're definitely flying through this. I know, and it's even long, even though we're flying through it. Uh, look down at uh, chapter 8. I think we'll look at verse 21. No, verse 22 is where it starts. It says, The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of the minions. They're extremely appreciative. They're extremely appreciative. They're not really sure who to give credit to, so they give credit to Gideon. So this is a test of his, of his character. And he responds to them in verse 23. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. See, God was their king. They said, be our king. He says, no, only God is. So right here we're going like, Kent, you said this was the bad of Gideon's, Gideon's identity. It is. This is what's crazy. This is where it gets bad. Verse 24. So he just says this, and then he says, And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, each one of you. Give me the earrings from his spoil. It actually explains, for they had, got, got, they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. He says, basically, all these people they killed, this is the reality of war. I mean, I hate to get into it, but when someone died, they had no use for the stuff they had on, right? So the people would take the stuff off them. And what they had taken is they had taken jewelry, and especially these men wore earrings of gold. I'm not sure how big they are, but it says that like they're supposed to give a portion of what they won to Gideon. And Gideon gets 1,700 shekels. And if you look down, what is a shekel? It's about two-fifths of an ounce or 11 grams. That's a ton of gold, right? So somehow in the middle of this, this victory, this, this enjoyment that he's placing his identity in God, it seems, he immediately takes a 180. And says, give me some uh, spoil. Let me earn something. I won't be your king, but I <coughs> might as well have some stuff. You know, I have worked this hard. I, I did, like, I chased all those people down. That was really difficult. And he starts taking in the enjoyment of it. And it says in verse 28, it gets worse. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city of Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So Gideon takes this and makes it this into like this, this garment. And it's, it's, like, it's kind of like a high priestly garment. It's, a, it's a ephod is something that you wear when you are doing like sacrifices. And he makes a fancy garment out of it, right? Puts gold, right? It's like this is big bling, right? He's like, he's like walking around with a big old cross on his shoulder, right? Like down, big old chains. He says, well, prosperity. I deserve some prosperity from this. And he builds this thing. And then all the people of Israel, instead of giving credit to God, which is what he tried to do, right? Don't make me king. God's king. But then he says, give me all your gold. I'm going to make something for us to worship. Because they start giving worship and credit to it more than God. This is where it gets bad. He turns. He allows something in his life that starts undercutting his identity in God. We do the same. There's things in our hearts, things in our minds. We're up at Hume, some of us. We talked about that. There's repentance. This is continually needed in our lives. We need to continue to repent and fall onto God's forgiveness. We need to look to those areas. This is a small thing, right? He just says, well, give me some gold. What's the harm in that, right? It turned out disastrous. What is that for you? What is it that's in your life right now, that's something you came in here tonight with, that you need to get rid of? That you know that when you ask for it, 
It wasn't the greatest thing. Maybe it's your new phone. Maybe it's your new car. Maybe it's your new whatever, fill it in, right? Maybe it's not something. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, it, it, maybe it's a, a game system. I don't know. I don't know what you have. Uh, often for me, what I have to give up is these new games I find in the app store, right? Because I find it's like it undercuts, it steals all my joy, and it steals all my affection and attention. And I have nothing left, and I have an identity crisis. If you want to have your identity, if you want to be confident, you have to have your true identity set in Christ, finding satisfaction and enjoyment from him alone. Whatever it is that steals that, look into it. This is, not where, this is where the bad ends. He then has like 70 sons, chapter 8 tells us. And he names one of them. This is crazy, right? You don't have 70 sons from one woman. You have 70 sons when you have a ton of wives. He said he has wives and he has concubines. That's not a good thing, okay? What that means is he became king. That statement right there, he said, oh, no, 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 no. I won't take the title. I'll just take all the things that come with kingship, the gold, the women, the children. And that was really big in those days, okay? That was what, that's what a king did. That's what a king was. Gideon, to put a, a nail in the bad, names one of his sons Elimelech. If you don't know what Elimelech means, it means king. Of course, you wouldn't know what it means. You didn't know Hebrew. Um, sorry. Uh, you guys don't know that. Um, it means king. So he says, my, my sons aren't going to rule over you. I'm not going to rule over you. My grandsons aren't going to rule over you. But he has a turn of heart because his identity moves because of his gold, because of the things that he poured into, because of what he invested into, his identity turns. And he's same old scared Gideon. And this is where it all gets ugly. He's not relentless. He doesn't pursue it to the end. He failed to end well. He doesn't leave a legacy. And what happens? Gideon got comfortable Gideon got apathetic. Gideon died there. In verse 33 of chapter 8, look down. It says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal birth their God. Okay, what was his nickname? Right? Contend with Baal, right? Like, he was the defender of God, right? Like, he had this, like, big title. He was a macho guy. And so while he was alive, the people never went back and worshipped Baal, which is a good thing, right? Well, which is a good thing. They didn't go after that, but he did set up other things that they hoard after. What do they mean by hoard? That they, they gave attention, affection, and love towards. Because God said, you are my people. It's like God said, they got married. And when they started going after other idols and other things that get their affection, he's like, you're cheating on me. You're cheating on me. Gideon, well, he's like, hey, you can't go out there and go with that person, but you can't go with her. It's wrong. But Gideon, he's a defender against Baal, but as soon as he dies, nothing changed. He didn't help cultivate something that would cause change. He got comfortable with his gold and his wives and his sons. He got apathetic towards the things of God. The defender's gone. His son then becomes king. So chapter 9 actually is continuation of Gideon's story. And his son goes to these people, the city, and they end up conspiring. And his son has all his other brothers killed. This is where it gets ugly. Gideon got comfortable and it got ugly. When we get comfortable, it gets ugly. 
His son goes out and has all his brothers killed. It says there was empty and worthless men that he hired to go kill his brothers. They go out, they slaughter them all. One actually survives and, and finds him and prophesies this like amazing prophecy. We can't just really get into it, but you can read it later in chapter 9. He's just like saying, there's this thing, there's this thing. And he's like, we're going to like burn you down. And what happens? Uh, Elimelech is, is conquering all these places and, and showing that he's king. <laughs> what ends up happening is really embarrassing for him. He's like trying to defeat this tower. And it gets super ugly where this woman takes this like millstone that they grind flour with. And sees him down there, and she goes, drops a millstone. Smashed it. And he's like super embarrassed. It's just like, if we had read this back there, it'd been like, not only would it be funny, we'd be like, that's so shameful. Because like, he's attacking, right? You would think another warrior would kill you. Just like woman from the village, she just killed him. Um, super embarrassing. Super embarrassing. He actually turns to someone and goes, you need, a, you, need a, you need to run me through or else this is going to be embarrassing. Which is even super more embarrassing because it's recorded, right? Super more? Thank you. When we get comfortable, when we get apathetic, we fail to be relentless, to finish well. It gets super ugly in our lives. Sin grows out of control. Things get into chaos. We don't know what's happening. We get in this fog. We're trying to find our way out, but we forget the solution. Relentlessness comes from the love of God. From the love of God that he's poured into us. And if we've forgotten this, we've got to come back to the, the beginning. This is what identity is built off of. True identity is built off of an understanding of the gospel. An understanding of who you are in comparison to a holy and, and righteous God. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve his presence. You wouldn't want his presence. But God so graciously, just like we saw through Gideon, in the middle of our crises, still is gracious to us. He is so gracious that he sent his son to die for us. He sent Jesus to live the life we couldn't, to die the death we all deserved in our place. And he was raised again that we all might have life. And then when we put our faith in Jesus, that's exactly what we get. We get a new identity. We get beloved as our title. We don't get defender, durable, we get beloved, child of God, saved, forgiven. These are things we ought to put the center of our lives on. These are what we ought to stand on. And when we stand on this in our true identity in Christ, what he's won for us, what he's gotten for us, we'll be set free and be confident. And maybe one day when someone says, who do you think you are? You know, you, who do, you, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? I'm beloved. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. And this is so important for us. Let's have that. Let's be relentless to the end. Look around those, to those around you. Be relentless. Be your example of relentlessness, of not giving up. If you're feeling apathy, here's my advice to you. Resist it. Communicate it. Get it out there. Because apathy wants you to turn inward and away from people. Relentlessness draws you out into community. And that's the community we need. We need to be a community for one another, seeking our identity in Christ, that we might see confidence in our lives. Let's pray. In your name. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, just tonight, for just, just the, the word, the, the, the message, the, 
the, the content that we were able to c- uh, cover. And God, I pray that you continue just to work in each one of our hearts. God, I pray as we just uh, just continue to think back over Gideon's story, Lord, that how he just failed to really have confidence. God, how he failed to, as he saw you move, as he saw your mighty works, that he failed to really recognize what he had in you. That he had a savior. That he had a sustainer. That he had a, a partner through life. God, I pray that you would not let us forget that. That we would know who we are. Beloved, forgiven, child of God. That we would walk with you. That we would know you. That you would fill us with this identity. That our lives would live out a gospel story to those around us. That we might see those around us come to know you. God, that our lives might be changed as our lives are continuing to be changed. Be with us even as we sing this song as we go tonight. We pray this in your name, in the power of this, your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.